0: Welcome to Imaginal Inspiration's podcast with me, David Lorimer, where I talk to my guests about experiences, people and books that have shaped their lives and work. Imaginal cells are responsible for the metamorphosis of the caterpillar into a butterfly, which is the Greek symbol for the soul. These cells are dormant in the caterpillar, but at a critical point of development, they create the new form and structure, which becomes the butterfly. My guest today is Dr. Aaron Kerriati. He's a psychiatrist and the director of the program in bioethics and American democracy at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, DC, and director of the Health and Human Flourishing Program at the Zephyr Institute of Palo Alto, California. He taught psychiatry previously at the UCI School of Medicine, where he was the director of the medical ethics program at UCI Health. And the chairman of the ethics committee at the California Department of State Hospitals. Dr. Cariati's work has appeared in the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, New Atlantis, Arc Digital, City Journal, and First Things. And he blogs at aaroncariati.stubstack.com. And he's importantly, he is the author of The New Abnormal The Rise of the Biomedical Security State. So, Aaron. A warm welcome on the Imaginal Inspirations
1: podcast. Thanks, David. It's great to be with you.
0: My first question is a shaping moment involving your choice of work, which obviously was as a physician. Um, Do you come from a family of physicians or was this a new departure?
1: I don't come from a family of physicians, so this was a new departure for me growing up I thought about certainly becoming a physician. I had a strong interest in science, also had an interest in the humanities. And as an undergraduate, I tried to hedge. I actually studied philosophy and pre-medical sciences and was going back and forth uh, between the two, thinking about maybe applying for graduate school in philosophy and becoming more of a pure academic, but also still having a draw toward medicine. And so I think a hinge point for me was at that time, I was dating my now wife, but at that time, my girlfriend, Jennifer, we were having a conversation about what to do after graduation. And she sort of suggested, well, if you pursue philosophy, then you can likely only do philosophy in an academic context. But if you pursue medicine, then you can keep a feat in both worlds. You can you can do work in medical ethics that would keep your interest in philosophy going, and so perhaps medicine would offer you the flexibility not to have to choose between these two loves and to be able to do both. And she turned out to be exactly right on that. The way my career has shaped up, I have gotten to the point now where I spent about half my time doing work in medicine and about half my time doing work in bioethics and public policy. So that was very good advice. And I'm glad I took it. Uh, and I love medicine. It has helped me stay grounded, help me to avoid spinning off into the, into the ether of, of rarefied abstractions that are to, perhaps too disconnected from the everyday world and the ordinary lives of people. So for me, it's been a very good balance because I, I love the intellectual life and, and intellectual pursuits, but I, I think I would have been in danger of becoming even more of an absent-minded professor than I already am if not for the the grounding effect of, you know, my face-to-face encounters with my patients and and treating, you know, everyday people that have everyday problems in the context of my work as a psychiatrist.
0: That's so interesting. I can now see um, the sort of philosophy component. Of course, I've got the ethics component, but the more philosophy component in your book, um, and you're having explained that background, and it doesn't surprise me at all. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad I regard myself as a philosopher as well, even though I've only trained sort of in it rather informally. Right. And then and that sounded like a good piece of mentoring, as it were, advice from, from your now wife. But did you have um, other mentors who were influential uh, as you were sort of coming into your work?
1: I did. As an undergraduate, I had some wonderful professors, uh, including Alfred Ferdoso, philosophy professor at Notre Dame, another professor there named David Solomon. Uh, David was the founding director of the uh, Center for Ethics and Culture at the University of Notre Dame. He taught me the history of ethics. And you know, I would count those and other professors I had in philosophy as being very influential in terms of my love for that discipline and my intellectual formation. And then when I got to medical school, I went to Georgetown in part because I wanted to do some bioethics work with a man named Edmund Pellegrino, who was one of the sort of founding fathers of American bioethics. He served as the chairman of the President's Council on Bioethics for a number of years after I left Georgetown. And so almost as soon as I arrived at Georgetown as a wide-eyed first year medical student, I went and knocked on his door and introduced myself. And Professor Pellegrino graciously you know, allowed me to sit down in his office and talk to him about my interest in bioethics. And eventually, as a fourth year, I was able to do some research and publish a paper and do a presentation with him. So that was, you know, that was great because that's exactly why I wanted to go to. Well, part of the reason why I wanted to go to Georgetown, but he sat me down in that initial visit and listened patiently to to me and took a real interest in me and my work. And he gave me a very simple piece of advice at that point. And he he said, well, in the preclinical years, in the first two years of medicine, you can feel a little bit removed from the clinical experience that you start getting in the third and fourth year clerkships when you're on the wards and sort of doing more uh, directly medical work. But he said, everything is important. Everything you're studying here, it's all relevant. It's all important. Uh, it's all... Uh, you know, something that you really want to dive into and embrace. And that was helpful advice to get me through those first two years. I think very often we have a kind of instrumentalist view of education. You hear even young people asking, you know, why do I have to study algebra? Why do I have to, you know, study uh, this or that discipline? When When am I going to use this in the real world? And I think that's a real distortion of the purpose of education and the life of the mind, and so Dr. Pellegrino was very helpful, even in that professional school context where everything is, you know, supposed to be seen as directly relevant to the work that you're doing, in, in a more immediate way than perhaps you know your high school calculus course might be. Even there, in that professional context, I don't take that purely instrumentalist view. Uh, a physician needs to be a generalist before he or she is a specialist, and that's that's something I've carried with me and has influenced my own work with medical students as well. And a human being before being a physician,
0: obviously. Exactly, um, precisely. It's, it's yeah. what Krishnamurti said to Fritjof Capra, he said, you're a human being first and you're a scientist second. And I thought that was a very good remark. There it is. But another, so. another, interesting, another interesting thing about what you've just said in my experience is that the Scottish universities used to have compulsory year of philosophy for all art students. Unfortunately, this is no longer the case, but it was the true for, you know, a couple of centuries Yeah, and they had a logic and metaphysics department and a moral philosophy department. So you had to do logic, metaphysics, and then you could choose options after that. So I had to do a year of philosophy mm. and it's really been quite pivotal in my development. If I hadn't had to right. do that, I wouldn't have developed the same interest as I do now, I have now rather in, in philosophy. So this brings us um, rather smoothly onto um, books that have shaped your life. Um, I used to have a question that said, a book that has shaped your life, but this is an impossible um, question for most of my uh, interviewees because there are quite a number of books that have
1: shaped their lives. Where to begin? That's the question. I read Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning in high school, and that had a profound effect on me. In retrospect, I think perhaps that was one of the books that influenced me uh, to take an interest in psychiatry. So Frankl was a psychiatrist, trained under Sigmund Freud in Vienna, uh, but eventually moved away from a Freudian paradigm. And In this book, he characterized man's fundamental drive as not a a sexual drive, as Freud had characterized it, or an aggressive drive, but as the will to to find meaning in life, Uh, not the will to power or the will to pleasure, but the will to meaning. And without a, a firm grounding in an orientation that gives your life meaning, people quite literally lose the will to live. They get sick, they die, or they take their own lives. And Frankl developed his his approach to psychotherapy, what he called logotherapy, not by sitting back in armchair philosophizing about meaning and purpose in life, but because of his experience in a Nazi death camp. So he was a prisoner in Auschwitz and and survived that period of time. And he describes in the book that prisoners could notice when another prisoner lost the, the will to live, lost the meaning and purpose that was giving him a reason to get up in the morning and to continue, even in those horrible, terrifying, anguishing circumstances, continue to try to push forward and survive. Death in the the Nazi concentration camp could look rather arbitrary. And very often it was. But when a prisoner lost the, the will to meaning, the light would go out in their eyes. And the prisoners had a name for it, which in German sort of translates loosely as as the walking dead, you know, this was a person who would come down with an infection. This was a person who would fall back in formation and be shot or stop working or stop eating. And, you know, it was only a matter of time for they were, they were slated for extermination. So it was that experience in Auschwitz that led him to take a particular approach to psychiatry. And I think that uh, that basic orientation has helped me in my own work as a psychiatrist and psychotherapist. And uh, certainly certainly also jibes with my interest in philosophy. So Man's Search for Meaning was an influential early book that I read. Uh, since then, there have been many others, whether in philosophy or theology. Uh, Augustine's Confessions has been an influential book that I've reread you know, every five to 10 years and takes on a different hue and different meaning every time. I read it. It's such a rich and great work of sort of the first work of, of intellectual autobiography in the West. And um, it holds up very well over over time. Yeah, I mean, I could name dozens of others, I'm both sure you could. science me just... and medicine and elsewhere. But those, those are a couple that come immediately to mind.
0: Let me come back on uh, Viktor Frankl, because this is one of the key books uh, for me as well. I've read it three or four times. And I've read most of his other work, and there's one that's come right. out fairly recently, um, which I sort still, still in the pipeline for review. Um, but um, uh, I'm currently reading a, a, a similar, but well, not a similar book, similar period. Um, it's called *An Interrupted Life* by Etty Hillerson. Um, oh yes, she, she finished up in in Auschwitz as well, um, but it's her diary for the two years before and and all her experiences and it really shows just like frankel the power of the human spirit right and quite extraordinary and i think that's that's one of the things that can inspire us you know to stand up for what we know we need to stand up
1: for i haven't read hillison but i read a lovely little book called uh interior freedom by jacques philippe and in the first or second chapter of that book he quotes extensively from her diary, and I, I remember reading those those quotes and um, his kind of description of her life. It struck me that this was very much along the lines of what Frankel was talking about. So, yeah, I'll need to move that that book up my list of <laughs> of priorities. I've sort of forgotten about it. I made a mental note at the time uh, that I needed to go take a look at it. But yeah, that's great. Yes, I think
0: the the the, the problem is you know the current reading or. Books that are currently coming out versus classics. And one should you know make some time to to read the classics or classic books as well. It's, but there's a lot of time pressure involved.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I have a book club. My wife and I are involved in a book club, uh, reading classic literature. And that's been helpful because I'm I'm often inclined toward nonfiction, but this is a this is a different fiction book, usually a novel or a play. Uh, we do a lot of Shakespeare plays every month. And uh, that's a helpful reminder that kind of the books that seem urgent or timely can sometimes crowd out the books that are, you know, most important. And so that's helped to to kind of maintain a steady diet of, you know, going back to uh, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and uh, Dickens and, you know, all those books that all of us, you know, should be reading and rereading and uh, not letting, whatever came out last year from the publishers crowd out the stuff that's endured over time. And, you know, is remained in print for 50, hundred, 200 years.
0: Well, it's, uh, most Tolstoy was the author of another confession, um, you no, know, like Augustine, which is also it's a very powerful book as well. Uh, let's move on to, um, some sort of key moment of insight in your work. Um, possibly related to consciousness, but that might not be relevant um,
1: for you. There were some early moments in my work as a psychiatrist and some patients that I treated that, you know, situations where patients were overwhelmed by a severe mental illness, they were in an acutely manic state, or they were in an acutely psychotic state. But even then, Uh, a patient who is delusional, a patient who is hallucinating and kind of losing touch with reality, seeing things that aren't there, hearing things that are not there. Nonetheless, a skilled psychiatrist can oftentimes find a way past those symptoms and the, the kind of chaotic uh, features of mental life when someone is dealing with a mental illness like schizophrenia or manic depressive illness, bipolar disorder. The light of reason and the, the basic grounding and insight of the patient can still remain intact, even in the face of those sort of assaults on rationality. And to to find that place where you can engage with the real person, to find that place where you can tap into the person maintains enough self awareness to, you know, make a good judgment or to make a good decision, in spite of the fact that the voices are telling me to do something else. I can, I can learn to recognize that, no, that is part of my illness. And I don't actually want to hurt myself. Or I don't actually want to injure myself, or I shouldn't engage in this self destructive behavior. And, you know, that's happened on, any number of occasions and i remember one of the first encounters that i observed with a very skilled attending physician at georgetown in i think it was my first week on the psychiatry rotation where he had an acutely manic patient that was that was bouncing off the walls couldn't sit still <laughs> lots of you know uh, grandiose and quote unquote crazy ideas that she was expressing but with his kind of skillful intuition and just the way in which he reached out and grasped her hand and shook it it and looked her in the eye that had had this calming effect and a connecting effect and allowed her to trust him was really extraordinary. It was subtle. It was difficult to describe. It would probably be difficult to teach, but it was a real moment for me to recognize the importance of, you know, the human being's freedom and rationality. I think these two key features of consciousness that, you know, our, our decisions, our ability to discern things can certainly be influenced by cultural, social, behavioral factors, habits. Uh, Our consciousness can be impaired by illness uh, and, disorders of the brain. And yet, and I think this was Frankel's insight, something of the person still remains there in spite of all of that. And if you can find that fulcrum, if you can find that place and engage that, you can help the person to find their way out of the impasse that's created by something like mental illness and that's very powerful
0: that's so interesting because i think your senior past physician there was using really an intuitive sense that's right um you know and just and his, his own experience and judgment uh, which meant he was able to do the right thing um to to, to sort of penetrate through the veil as it were and that's exactly right if you can't put that into an algorithm and I think this is one thing, which is you know, intuition, I think. And Ian McGilchrist writes about this at some length in his matter with things as, as a psychiatrist right. as well. Um, the, the, these these moments where experience and the present meet um, are opportunities for an intuitive connection and judgment um, that without that experience and
1: using that or engaging that faculty, you you couldn't do it. I think that's exactly right. I mean, this is one of the reasons that, You know, an algorithm or an iPad will never ultimately be able to replace the the work of a physician and the human elements that go into the practice of medicine. I think that's particularly true in psychiatry, but I would argue it's true in every specialty of medicine. After treating thousands of patients with schizophrenia, I could walk into an emergency room and even before talking to a patient, just recognize what the patient is suffering from. How do I do that? How do I explain that to the resident? How, you know, how do you know that this is what you're what you're dealing with almost immediately? And then you ask the questions to get confirmatory evidence for what your intuition already tells you. And, you know, sometimes you can identify subtle factors in the patient's disposition or behavior or just what they look like, what they smell like that can kind of clue you in, but ultimately I think you're, you're trying to explain something post-hoc that uh, happened almost at a pre-conscious level that is exactly that meeting of experience with the present moment and, and the, the sort of I- I- intuition that would be hard to characterize algorithmically or scientifically. That is what comes into play in that moment. And I I, I think skilled physicians, skilled surgeons um, operate eventually mostly by intuition all the time. And um and they, they can sense when something has gone wrong, even when they haven't seen the evidence for it yet. And they act in advance to try to, you know, prevent the patient from bleeding out on the operating table, just because exactly. they're taking taking in and processing things at an unconscious level that You know would be difficult to try to spell out and explain other than by saying well i just i just knew i I just knew knew something was wrong um and i figured out later kind of what went wrong and how it went wrong but even before i put all those pieces together my gut just told me you know the patient needs this i've got to act now well it just i'll give you another
0: example which friend physician told me when he was quite junior and, and he was looking at somebody's eye, and a voice in his head said, "There's a small tumor behind the eye." <laughs> um, and so he then did the necessary tests and then yeah. found that this was actually correct, but there was no way of of diagnosing this you know by, by reason alone as it were. And then just so his um, uh, his, his senior consultant was was amazed yeah. um, and said, "How did you know that?" So, I mean, it's a good illustration of what we're talking about here, that there's a sense of knowing um, that um, we need to, use, in fact, we use it all the time, you know, whether we uh,
1: acknowledge That's right. it or not. That's right. I mean, the skilled, the skilled and experienced cook or gardener or, you know, you, you could name any, uh, any trade or task where people are using, I think Michael Polanyi called it tacit knowledge. Indeed. And again if you ask them why did you do that or how did you how did you do that they they can go back and sort of rationalize later and try to explain how they knew what they knew but very often those are just uh, those are just kind of rationalizations for what was already operating at a very intuitive unconscious level and that kind of knowing is powerful that's one of the reasons that you know, the human mind is not like a really complicated computer, which seems to be the metaphor that's taken hold uh, these days with the advent of, of so-called artificial intelligence.
0: Yes, exactly. And then my next question, um, I normally ask about how your understanding of consciousness influences the way you live your life. But in your case, I'd br- like to bring in ethics, uh, yeah. because you you had obviously, I know that you had a pivotal experience and decision that you had to make. Um, a couple of years ago, just tell, tell, run us through that. That your thought process is there, and what brought you to that point.
1: My view of consciousness and my view of my work, I think, is grounded ultimately in the philosophical premise of the primacy of truth, and uh, that in my work as a psychotherapist, a basic premise is that the truth is always better than a lie. Even if the truth may be difficult or uncomfortable for the patient to accept or to process, because you know if you don't accept and process and come to terms with reality, you're going to continue suffering more than you need to. Um, and avoidance of that in the short term might make you feel better, but in the long term, it ends up creating more problems than it solves. So, addictions is a good example of that, right? People who do not want to contend with reality will try to avoid reality through the use of drugs or substances or what have you. And in the short term, that might make them feel better because they don't have to contend with difficulties in their life or difficulties in the quote unquote real world. But over the long term, it obviously only compounds their suffering because uh reality eventually pushes back. <laughs> and um and so I think you know this idea that the truth matters uh, that the truth should matter above other considerations of expediency or economic gain or what have you. Also, I, I would like to think informs my work in ethics, and so trying to trying to live by the truth and trying to adhere to uh, foundational principles that that I claim to believe is an important part of being a professional ethicist, not just talking about what is the right thing to do, but trying to do it even under difficult circumstances. So for me, this um, this kind of came to a head professionally in my time at the University of California. I'd spent 15 years there as the director of the bioethics program I was a full professor in the School of Medicine. I expected I would spend the rest of my career there and eventually retire at the university. But then when the university finalized their vaccine mandate, I saw people being harmed and I saw basic principle of medical ethics being steamrolled or set aside the principle of informed consent, which goes all the way back to the Nuremberg Code, which is a bulwark of 20th century medical ethics, and I thought 21st century medical ethics as well, and yet uh, during the pandemic we seem to kind of forget about the, the doctrine of informed consent that adults of sound mind should have the ability to decide to accept or decline medical interventions and should be able to make that decision for their children who are too young to consent. That's precisely what uh, what was set aside with policies like uh, forced vaccination on pain of losing your job. So I was projecting ahead to the required ethics course that I teach every January and February to the students the medical students and in lecture number 2 I talk about the principle of informed consent and later on in the course I talk about you know the importance of moral courage that you're a medical student you're at the bottom of the hospital hierarchy but you do have a responsibility for the health and safety of patients and so if you see something happening that might compromise Uh, the well-being of patients, you need to stick your neck out. You need to say something, even if you fear retaliation, you know, the attending surgeon walks into the operating room and you see his hands are shaking and his breath smells of alcohol and he's sort of stumbling and slurring his speech. And he's about to cut open the patient, (laughs) you know, you need to intervene. And, and, you know, imagine that patient is your sister or your mother or your brother uh, or your son or daughter. And, you know, what do you need to do in these circumstances? So I saw policy being rolled out at my own institution where I am supposedly the, the go-to person for medical ethics. I saw it violating a basic principle that I taught to medical students. And I thought, well, I could try to put my head down and navigate this quietly and, and you know, take care of myself, or I can try to challenge the policy publicly. And I chose the latter path because I, I think I wouldn't have woken up with a clear conscience. Uh, and been able to actually teach those principles to students if I hadn't actually tried to nuts talk about them and live them, that ended up costing me my job. So I challenged the university's vaccine mandate in federal court, and the university fired me shortly after I fired the lawsuit. You know, th- this could be seen as a, a bad outcome of <laughs> you know that that decision, but I, I like to think that. Um, you know there's many ways to teach and in this case perhaps even if i'm no longer teaching the students you know through my words i've taught something to the students through my actions through your example
0: right exactly and 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 of course that required the very moral courage that you're talking about and now I, I i find it very interesting that you projected yourself forwards and you know, that you would be speaking to your students about these principles and a clever one might have said well <laughs> Uh, what about the mandate? So, no, I think it's admirable, um, uh, Aaron, uh, and uh, you know, other other people have done this, but a lot of people haven't. A lot of people didn't have the moral courage, um, and that's part of the issue that we're up against more generally. And I always regard moral courage as really the the supreme
1: virtue. I don't disagree, and I don't want to hold myself up as a paragon of Virtue. Uh, I, I, you know, I didn't know what would happen when I did this. I had a pretty good sense that this this would be the outcome. I was I was willing to take that risk, but for me it was it was sort of a situation in which I almost felt that I couldn't do otherwise. That like, to do otherwise Lisa. would. Yeah, nicht, I, here I
0: here I stand. Yeah, here okay, I yeah. stand. Ich kann nicht anders. Yeah. No, I think, yeah, no, well, I think that's a it's a it's a it's a brilliant um instantiation of you know, the practical side of a philosophical conviction. You know, so so it's putting into practice something which you had arrived at rationally. Um and Julie Perness was in a similar, oh, yes. um situation um, and uh, she taught ethics courses. Um, uh, and came to the same conclusion as you anyway Aaron we're coming to the end of our conversation so I'd just like to ask you do you have any proverb or do you live by or favorite quotes that you'd like to share
1: yeah there so there are many but just maybe keeping keeping in line with what we just spoke about and the the primacy of truth that the truth has a liberating power and it's Unfortunately, it's become a bit of a cliche, but Christ's words in the Gospel of John, that the the truth will make you free, I, I think are words that I try to live by. Again, going back to my work in psychotherapy, even though the truth may be difficult or painful to accept, ultimately it's going to have a liberating power that health and human flourishing have to be grounded in living in line with what is the case living in line with reality you can't cheat reality you can't cheat the laws of nature a friend of mine at stanford likes to say that human nature always bats in the bottom of the ninth inning uh, which is a very american metaphor because it's a baseball metaphor but Mm. sort of at the end of the day reality is going to push back that's why the primacy of truth is so important i think in philosophy and ethics, in actually the practice of medicine and in trying to live a flourishing human life. And so these, these words of uh, of Jesus, that the, the truth will make you free, have a profound, I think, multi-layered meaning that can be explored certainly theologically in the Christian context in which it was spoken, but also philosophically in, in the context of understanding human beings to have a shared rationality and the ability uh, to conform our minds to to reality to what is the case and that human consciousness exists for the sake of trying to pursue the truth and if we try to live in that way generally we're going to be happier we're certainly going to be healthier and um, attempts to to deny that there is such a thing as truth, uh, attempts to create, each and every one to create our own truth, a kind of radical relativism generally doesn't lead to health and human flourishing. And I, I think can't be the basis for a sound functional society. Yeah. Yeah. I very much agree with that. And uh, you're, you're in fact,
0: um, younger than a lot of my <coughs> uh, guests, um, but I always ask this last question, if there's any advice you'd give to your younger self. Oh boy.
1: Uh <laughs> <laughs> advice I would give to my y- younger self. be humble, be open, be open to being wrong, recognize that you don't that you don't know everything. I mean, this sort of bravado and arrogance of of youth, I think, is something that people learn with experience is is folly. Young people are daring, and that that's a good thing. Uh, young people are perhaps overconfident and you know that that creates a sort of youthful energy, but it can also, it can also lead to to missteps and mistakes and overestimation of one's own abilities so moral courage also has to be always combined with with humility and the ability to admit that I, you know i may have been mistaken or i may have been wrong i might have been wrong about uh, the ethics of the vaccine mandate policy on which i sort of sacrificed my professional career i acted in good faith I acted according to what I believe to be the case. And I still still hold by those convictions, but I need to also maintain the possibility that maybe the policy I was challenging was a good policy and was the right policy and was morally justified. Uh, So uh, I think humility comes with Age and, <laughs> age and experience Age and experience
0: i will just close with the well-known quotation from t.s Eliot's four quartets so he says the only wisdom we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility of humility humility, just humility so. is endless so yep. on that note aaron and uh, thank you so much for joining me as my guest on imaginal inspirations and for your
1: inspiration and uh, example thank you thanks david i enjoy the conversation